Good morning. Thanks for having me here. Uh, as was said, my name is Nathan McCorkendale. I'm the site pastor at North Site. Uh, just a really, really quick update. Uh, yeah, we're meeting. We, we exist. Uh, things are going well. Um, we have been meeting the last number of weeks as we... Uh, so about weekly, I get an email from somebody saying, hey, what's happening at Northside? I'd like to be part of it. And we're asking the question, how do we integrate people well into our group so that we can uh, continue to live mission and not lose our focus on, on reaching Silverwood, North Industrial Area of Saskatoon with the gospel? And so we're working through just clarifying for ourselves, you know, who are we? How are we functioning? What's our approach to family ministry? What's our approach to all of this stuff, and we're just trying to get all our ducks in a row, and, and then we, in March, we're hoping, uh, praying that we'll just be able to toss out the invite that says, hey, if you're interested in, in becoming part of our core group, living on mission uh, in, in that north part of the city or wherever your neighbors are, uh, you're welcome to come, and I don't know, maybe we'll do like a worship service together, and we'll have some food, and then we'll indoctrinate, indoctrinate you with, with everything we know. So <clears throat> uh, that's, that's sort of where we're, we're aiming there for March, and uh, you'll... I'm, You'll see something on the Facebooks or something like that. Uh, I, I like this joke. It worked really well last time, so I'll try it again. Like, actually, so Rob Newfelt said that we're actually a church of four congregations, uh, and that the balcony up there is the fourth. And uh, so, hello, way up there. We love you. Um, there are seats down here. Just, just saying. Uh, so. Anyway, we are uh, in Nehemiah 8, 9, 10. Just real simple, uh, short concise passage of the Bible. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you want to look in there, we're going to dip in and out just a little bit. To be honest, it's going to be mostly Nehemiah 9, uh, but it's there. Um, apologies if this is the one we're recording. Apologies to those of you who are listening to the podcast later. I have a cold. I will probably sneeze and you will jump. So that's going to... All right, Nehemiah chapter 8. Actually, before we can get to chapter 8, we have to go back to chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7 was the story. It tells us that the wall was completed. The gates were hung. The great task of Nehemiah is now accomplished. Oh, that's good. We're done. No. Okay, so here's my... I just feel like the people have this, this moment, right? Now we have some security. We have the walls around us. The protection is there. What are, what are we going to do now? Like, we've just put all our energy and all our time into building this wall, and, and now what? So if you have your Bible in front of you and you're looking at Nehemiah chapter 8, you probably see something that says something along the lines of, Ezra reads the law. <clears throat> Which to me, the first mental image was like Bruce standing up here and saying, hey, we're going to have prayer summit. To which some of you said, yeah, but the Chiefs and Rams are playing again. And that was a really good game last time, and I don't know, right? So take your Bibles and, and look really carefully in the first four verses, and I want you to notice something. And if you're reading, if you're like one of those late adopters and you're still hanging in there with your King James Bible, or you're a real Bible nerd and you have an NASB in front of you, you you're going to have a little bit of an advantage here, and you're going to see something that the rest of us that are reading out of our NIVs and MLTs and CVs and Passion Bibles or whatever, you're going you're gonna to not see this as clearly. Chapter 8, verse 1. All the people assembled with a unified purpose. What the King James translation says is, they gathered themselves together. 
And then it says, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And then now in verse 4, it says, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for this purpose. They gathered themselves. They asked. They went and built a wooden structure for someone to stand on. Like, why? Who finishes their big task, sits down on their couch and says, you know what I need in my life right now? Leviticus. That's what I need more of. The people of Israel have just had a significant life experience with God. This is what I think is happening. The wall is complete. They step back and they can literally see the evidence in front of them of God's provision and protection. So I imagine Dodo, it's a real biblical name, 2 Samuel 23, if you don't believe me. Dodo is standing there, and he's looking at the wall. He says, Asher, what do you see when you look at that wall? Asher says, you know what I see? I see God's faithful protection of us. Do you remember when we had to strap swords onto our sides, and we had to work in shifts because we were under constant threat and attack, and at any moment this whole thing was going to destroy? And if it had not been for God's faithful protection, we would have no wall. Dodo's like, that's cool. You know what I see? I see God's faithful provision for us. God stirred in the heart of a pagan king and he sent Nehemiah with the treasury to build this wall. God provided all the finances and leadership that we needed to accomplish this. God has provided for us. And this wall stood as physical evidence for the people of God's provision and protection. And then they said, you know what? Maybe we should get to know this God. And so they gather themselves. They call out the priest. They build up a structure and they say, come and tell us more about this God. Physical structures can awaken us to desire to know more about God. Physical things in our lives have this potential to move us towards a greater knowledge and understanding of the Lord. The birth of a child. The way God walked with you when you were fired and you lost your job and you didn't know what was next and God faithfully walked through and provided and led you to the next thing. I was saying in the Sunday school class, uh, my wife and I have emptied our house and moved out of the country twice not knowing what was going to happen and where the money was going to come from to take care of our mortgage. We look back and we say, but God has provided. God has proven himself faithful to us. So as we read this passage, as we look into chapter 9 this morning, I I think that chapter 9 is actually the grounding. It's the foundation of everything else that's going to happen and everything else I want to say. And so chapter 9, this guy, his name's Pethahiach. I don't know. Just don't say that name if you've been eating garlic. (laughs) He stands up in front of the crowd and he says this. Oh, I was thinking like, so the the people of Israel stand out there for six hours a day while they get this teaching. I was like, maybe you all should stand up and I'll just preach and you can stand for the whole time. Okay, not not big buy-in on that idea. 
<coughs> okay, so chapter 9, this guy whose name I cannot pronounce stands up and he begins to read and pray. And he says, stand up. Bless the Lord your God. From everlasting to everlasting, bless your glorious name, which is high above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You alone made heaven, even the heaven of heavens, with all their forces. And you made the earth and all that is on it, and the seas and all that are in them. You preserved them all, and the heavenly forces worship you. And then he begins to recount the way God called Abraham, found him faithful. The way that when they were afflicted in Egypt, God rescued them and led them. I love verse 15. It says, when they were hungry, you gave them bread from heaven. And when they were thirsty, you brought water out of the rock for them. God, he says, you provided for every little thing we needed. And then he confesses. He says, our ancestors acted badly. They were stubborn and they refused to obey. And how does God act? And how does God respond when they sin? What is the revelation of God to the people of Israel? Chapter 9, verses 17 to 20. But you are a God ready to forgive, merciful and compassionate, very patient and truly faithful, You didn't forsake them. Even when they cast an image of a calf for themselves, saying, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, and holding you in great contempt, you in your great mercy didn't abandon them in the wilderness. The column of cloud continued to guide them in their journey during the day. The column of lightning lit their path during the night. You gave your good spirit to teach them. You didn't withhold your manna from them, and you gave them water for their thirst. So again and again throughout chapter 9, we are reminded of God's revelation to the people, of the one who is merciful, compassionate, ever faithful to the covenant that has been made, the way in which God has acted for the people. And so no wonder the people respond with confession and worship. The revelation of who God is and how God has acted for the people demands a response. They see how God is good to them and desire to live up to their calling as a holy nation. The revelation of God begins to spark renewal and repentance among the people. And Ezra and Nehemiah stand before the people in chapter 8 and they say, don't be sad, don't weep. And the people go and they celebrate. Why do they celebrate? Verse 12 says, they understood what had been said to them. Let me just suggest to you that I think what the people understood that caused them to be able to rejoice as they left that place was they understood the character of God. They understood that the Lord is compassionate and merciful and full of faithful love. That he does not hold our sins against us, but removes them as far as the east is from the west. They understood that God is just and that he provides and protects for them just like he did for their ancestors. He has now done for them with a wall. The question I have to ask then is like, how are we doing as a people of telling our experiences of God? So a little over a decade ago, I was working a um, miserable job. It was horrible. I hated every moment. I hated every day I got up. 
I had conflict with my supervisor. I was underappreciated. I was full of feelings of disappointment. Things were hard emotionally. Oh, I was way underpaid. Uh, <laughs> things were hard emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, and basically everything about life sucked. And I remember going through these days where I went, I know why my coworkers get drunk and drink from Friday to Sunday. I understand that. My wife is a great woman, an incredible woman of God. And so she, she started these celebrations at the end of the week. And she'd make pizza and we'd watch a movie as a declaration of hope. That this is not all that we are going to have forever. That this is a season and not the rest of our life. It was a declaration of the faithfulness of God and the provision of God to make it through a week. And even every once in a while, we could even buy a pizza instead of making it. God provided for us what we needed. We celebrated that God was still moving and carrying us through when we had no money. And we've kept that tradition going for over a decade now. So a few weeks ago, we were reflecting on this, and and we were like, we need to teach our kids that we don't just have pizza and a movie night on Friday because mom and dad like pizza and Pixar movies. The movies were a lot better 10 years ago. um, And so we began to explain to them, we, we do this as a reminder of God's faithful provision for us, to celebrate the end of the week, to recognize God, to look forward to the future. And so last week I said to my six-year-old Caden, I was like, so Caden, like, do you remember why we do pizza movies? She's like, because dad doesn't like his job. <laughs> no, no, daddy loves his job. There was a time when daddy did not love his job. So we're working on it, okay? Like we're, we're, we're in process. If you hear nothing else this morning, this is what I want you to know. For the people of Israel... The entire motivation and desire for transformation comes as they recount and retell the story of God's great love, compassion, mercy, and rescue. The whole of these chapters rests on chapter 9. Because Ezra is reading it, the people are reminded of who God is and who they are supposed to be, and they are moved to change. So there's a Spanish course that gets sung, it goes, Porque tu Dios es amor, tu puedes amar. Because your God is love, you can love. You see, the revelation of who God is doesn't just mean that we know what love is. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ now actually enables us to love. It enables us to live differently. Because as we know the revelation of the God who is love, we are now able to live differently and live in love. This is, this is not a matter of trying to live up to God, but it is a rather living as response to what we see in God. It is living in response to who Jesus is. And I think that's crucial for us as Christians, like that we respond to our revelation of God. The ways in which your walls, well, let's go back to this analogy of the wall. Imagine your life as a wall and the rubble of stuff around. God Can you point to your wall? Can you say, I remember this is how God was sustaining me. I didn't build that on my own. If it had not been for God in my life, there would still be nothing but rubble at my feet. I would still be hopeless. I would still be caught in my addiction. I would still be all stressed out. I would still be pursuing all these vain glories of the world and competition and trying to get that job promotion. And I would still be doing all of this. But for God and His mercy, compassion, love, in faithfulness, I would still be rubble and wrecked. 
Or maybe a more honest way of saying it is, I am so wrecked. (laughs) But God is proving faithful, and this wall is coming up little by little. I can see that things are better than they used to be. So the people hear the story of God, the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they're moved to tears of repentance. Like, I've read those books and been moved to tears. Not tears of repentance. (laughs) But what the people discover as they listen to the law was that they had lost their marker of holiness. The people of Israel were supposed to be a holy nation, a light to the Gentiles, and instead they had just absorbed all the cultural values and ways around them, and they just absorbed them and taken them into their life. They had lost the radical witness that they were called to. So the word holy means, literally, to be set apart. This is a holy cup. Okay, so we've been busy Marie Kondoing everything in our house, like this spark joy. I've got a whole set of cups in my house that spark joy, and I use them one day a year. And for 360, whatever day, 364 days of the year, they sit in a cupboard. These are for brunch. These are for the celebrations, the good times. They are set apart for a purpose. So what happens if I take this cup out of my special cup cupboard and I put it over in my regular cup cupboard and I start using it with my morning Metamucil? It's a common cup. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a cup. It has to be set apart for a purpose. The people of Israel lost what it meant to be set apart. They lost what it meant to be holy. Israel became like all the other nations around them. And Nehemiah tells us that they were polluted by their worship of other gods, that they were too busy to take a rest on the Sabbath, that they were neglecting to give their money to the worship, to the temple, and they were marrying other people from other nations. And they lost their radical witness. They became common and just like everybody else. And they were not holy. And then they hear the story of God, the revelation of who God is, and they are moved to repentance. So here's my next question. Could that have any relevance to us today? I mean, is there any chance at all that we as Christians here in this church possibly have absorbed some of the cultural values of the nations around us? So last week, my in-laws were driving from Hudson Bay down to come and celebrate my daughter's birthday. And then they hit Waka, and the little alarm in their car starts going beep, beep, beep. And it says, no oil, no oil, no oil. I was like, that's not good. You can't drive a car without oil. So they get out. My father-in-law checks, and sure enough, no oil. Cold weather, one of the seals had blown, and all the oil just went out the back. So we have these warning lights that tell us when something's broken, when something's not working right. So here's my questions for us. What are the cultural values of our age, of the nations around us, that maybe we've bought into? And what are the warning lights for us that say, this isn't right? What do we need to repent of? Well, let me suggest to you that the cultural values and the air that you and I breathe when we are around 
outside everywhere, the air that we breathe, the Western culture, the culture that breeds competition, self-gratification, entertainment, consumerism, image management, and freedom, just to name a few. Do you, you want to know what the really scary thing is about that? I can tell you exactly if and the person next to you can tell you if you've bought into those values. Ready? Take out your phone. All right. Give it to somebody beside you. No, don't, you don't have to. Now let's open up your calendar and let's see what your day goes to. Let me see your credit card statement. Let me see where your money went this last month. Let me look at your browser history and see what's there. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself? Of course I do. I'm a Christian. What percentage of your income last month did you spend on yourself and your family? And what percent did you give to God and neighbor? Let's just be real honest about this. What percentage of your time did you give to serving and loving those around you? And what percentage of time did you spend watching Netflix? Those things will reveal to us very quickly what we think is ultimate value and what is of most importance in our life. So this example, I've been using it a lot. I can say... I love my family, I love living, I love life. It's for sure, that's something I love. And my doctor and my cholesterol say, actually, you love chips more than you love those things. What we believe and what we give value to reveals itself very easily. And so here's my observation, is that just too many of us inside and outside of the church, the alarm bell is screaming that something is broken. We are stressed out. We are maxed out. We're dealing with choice anxiety. We have commitment phobia. Like, we have a whole thing of memes that are about, like, when somebody cancels plans that you've made, but you weren't going to go to anyway. And that feeling of, like, yeah, I get to stay at home and I was going to do it anyway. Now I don't have to be the bad person. We have commitment phobia. We're increasingly disconnected and insecure. We're constantly wrestling with feelings that we're not smart enough, beautiful enough, successful enough, or cool enough. Can't preach as well as him. Can't read the Bible as well. Can't do all that. My family's a mess. I mean, right, like in the church here, we would never, ever actually feel insignificant if our family didn't measure up with somebody else's family, or if my job wasn't as successful as somebody else's, or maybe I'm not as good as the next person. Then we mask these cultural values of competition, and we mask them as love. So i got to put Levi into every possible, like, i got to get, he has to learn Spanish and Mandarin, and he has to be able to play soccer and advanced math. Otherwise, Gladys' kid is going to do better than mine, and everyone's going to see that Levi's the genius that he is. And so I fill my life with stuff because I'm competing with the next family. Like, I'm sure this is a totally, I made this, this doesn't 
apply to anybody here, but I'm sure that there's not a single mom here who isn't struggling because you haven't gotten back into your pre-baby weight and you aren't able to slip on some tights and put your hair in a messy bun and Instagram out a picture of you doing your devotions and your two kids sitting by the fire while you have a lavender calendar and a latte while you're running your essential oil business. Like, look, if you can do all that, that's fine. But if you're feeling like you're insignificant and you don't measure up and you can't do all that, maybe you're not broken. Maybe it's that you've just bought into the cultural values and a worldview that says you have to measure up to that. And maybe, let me just suggest that maybe Jesus offers a better way. Maybe Jesus wants to give you freedom from that. Maybe we should stop comparing ourselves to one another and be honest and vulnerable and open about who we are and what Christ is doing. Let's stop buying into the values of our world and sanctifying them and then killing ourselves trying to live up to these things. We are all broken. We are all buying into a culture of values of self-gratification, self-love, and self-fulfillment. And so we're tired, and we have no margins in our lives, and so then we have to assign values to things. And I think, if we're honest, if I'm honest, I assign values to things, and I say this is more valuable than Jesus. So I was talking to one pastor. We are talking about how do we like, move our congregations into like, these small groups of, of same gender people who are going to train one another in obedience, model and experience the love of Jesus, and just help each other grow really as disciples of Jesus. And this pastor says to me, well, my people won't do that. Look, that reveals a heart value. It reveals a heart that has not been captured by the revelation of God and is responding to who God is. It is a heart that is captured by the revelation of sleep, time, money, or family, or whatever else that is keeping you as growing as a disciple of Jesus in community. So this isn't a pastoral thing to say, but I have a different congregation. It's not you. I'll say it. If you aren't interested in following Jesus every day in every moment, then stop playing religion and go have brunch with the rest of the city. The people come and they read the book of Leviticus and they realize that there are 22 verses about mold in their homes. God cares about every part of our lives. There is no compartmentalizing your spiritual life and your work life, your home life and your hobbies. God cares about everything. There is nothing in life that is outside of the concern of God. And it doesn't matter if it's your work, your home life, your health, your studies, your friendships, your sexuality, or the way that you come to a religious service. It all matters. Every decision, every habit you reinforce, every attitude that you engage with other people, it matters to God. So if we go back to this cup analogy, we could say that wholeness means holiness. Holiness means wholeness. It means that it's about your thoughts and your emotions, your bodies, your habits, your spending, your leisure, your sex, and your vocation. All of it is interconnected, and you can't come to worship God on Sunday and live out your individualized ideas of sexuality the rest of the week. God wants to take you, and he wants to 
fill you with his presence, and he wants to do it individually and corporately. Because we are set apart. We are holy. We are called to be people of love. And so here's my struggle. When I look at my own life, I can see a whole lot of places where my time and my money and my energy reveal that I do not value Jesus most in my life. So I'm just preaching to myself up here. Now, I'm not talking about a new religion here. I'm I'm talking about us now beginning to respond to the God who has loved us, died for us, forgiven us. We bring forward all the places that we have made other things more valuable than God because, frankly, diagnostics is the first step to fixing a problem. Okay. You love, you love sleeping in on Thursday morning more than getting together with some men at 6 o'clock who will help you model and experience the love of Jesus and train you in obedience. Okay, good. Now we can choose. Are you going to play religion? Or are you going to start responding to Jesus and changing your life? And so our services at Northsite, we regularly confess our sins. It's part of our liturgy. We say each week that we are people as Christians who recognize the gap. That there is a gap between what we say we love and what we actually love. There's a gap between who God says we are and how we live out that identity. There is a gap between who we want to be and how we treat those around us. We are people of the gap. We are people whose scripture says are clean and washed, holy saints, new creations, and yet so often I don't feel like that. So often I do not love my neighbor as myself. But God is merciful. He's full of faithful love. And Jesus is the one who comes and picks us up. He cleans us. He ransoms us. He sets us free. He adopts us. He welcomes us as a child of God. And he declares that we are now sons and daughters of God. So at Northsight, we recognize the gap. Almighty and most merciful Father, we confess that we have erred and strayed like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, and we have not loved you and our neighbors as much as ourselves. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us that we may walk in your ways and delight in your will to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. My heart as the old hymn says, is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So we ask the Holy Spirit to work within us, transform us, move us from glory to glory, and to transform us into the image of God, Jesus Christ. Because the revelation of God demands a response. And when we look around at the rubble, of the wall of our lives, and when we look at the parts of the wall that have been restored, we give thanks to God. We allow Him to captivate our attention even more, and we confess for the ways in which we have not yet been fully captured by God and His glory and His revelation. We respond with worship because of who God is 
And because He forgives our sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west, and He loves us, enabling us to love God more. So in a minute, uh, as the worship team comes up, they're going to lead us to respond to God in singing and worshiping and being captured by His revelation. And I know that a whole bunch of you need to run and you need to get your kids, but before you do that, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do this, but before you do that, can you just do something for me? Can you ask the Holy Spirit what the word is that He's asking you? There is a place of your life, a value that you have placed that is not Jesus first. Where have you bought into those things in the nations? What do you need to repent of? Just do it. And if God's actually inviting you to change something, to say, you know what, that men's group that I'm supposed to be part of, that women's Bible study that I've been putting off, that response, then make the commitment now to do it before you run out of here. Make that commitment. And then you need to tell somebody that you're going to do it. And if somebody comes to you and says, yeah, so I'm going to start a men's Bible study, your response is, what day are you starting? Who are you calling? And when are you going to have it done? Because we are called to respond when we hear revelation.